order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Greg McClymont. Number one, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to Lance Corporal Stephen McKee from the 1st Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiment, who died last Wednesday. He was a highly respected, selfless and committed soldier who will be sorely missed by all those who served with him. Our deepest sympathy are with his family and his friends. Mr Speaker, from September, military repatriations will no longer pass through the town of Wooten Bassett. I know the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to the people of Wooten Bassett. Their deeply moving and dignified demonstrations of respect and mourning have shown the deep bond between the public and our armed forces. Mr Speaker, it has been over 100 years since the town was conferred with the title of royal, but I can, can today confirm to the House that Her Majesty the Queen has agreed to confer the title royal on the town of Wooten Bassett as an enduring symbol of the nation's admiration and our gratitude to the people of that town. The town will become Royal Wooten Bassett later this year in a move I, will be, I believe will be welcomed right across our country. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Greg McClymont. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I associate this side of the House and all sides of the House with the Prime Minister's uh, condolences to the, the family and all who knew that brave serviceman? Mr Speaker, the previous government put in place the Overseas Victims Terrorism Compensation Scheme. When will British victims of overseas terrorism receive compensation? The Honourable Gentleman makes an important point, and this is something we are looking at and are reviewing and want to get right. I remember the debates that took place at the time of the Bali bomb, and I remember honourable members on all sides of the House who spoke about this, and we will be bringing forward our proposal shortly. Sir Malcolm Rifkin. The Prime Minister is to be commended for his leadership in trying to achieve a no-fly zone, but sadly it's unlikely that that can be implemented in time to prevent a final onslaught in Libya. Would the Prime Minister agree that the best response to this urgent crisis would be for the international community, with the support of the Arab League, to invite the Egyptian, to urge the Egyptian government to send a brigade of its army as a peacekeeping force into eastern Libya to protect its own citizens, to stop Gaddafi in his tracks, and to prevent a, a humanitarian disaster in Benghazi. Well, I have, I have great respect for my uh, right honourable friend, and he speaks with great expertise on these issues. And the points he made about the arms embargo yesterday uh, on Monday were extremely important. Of course, we'll look at any suggestion. Of course, the problem at the moment is there isn't a, a peace to keep. But what I can report to the House is that yesterday evening, after extensive discussion with Lebanon, France and the US and others, the UK did table a new draft Security Council resolution in the UN. This includes a no-fly zone, banning all flights except humanitarian flights, and it also includes an extension of the travel ban and the asset freeze and tougher enforcement of the arms embargo, particularly on the Libyan government. Of course, there are a wide range of views in the UN, but I would urge those to take the right steps so that actually we show some leadership on this issue and make sure that we can get rid of this regime. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, can I start by joining the Prime Minister's tribute to Lance Corporal Stephen McKee from 1st Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiment. He showed exceptional courage and bravery, and our thoughts are with his family and friends. I also want to join the Prime Minister in his remarks about the community of Wharton Bassett and the very fitting award of the Royal designation. 
I think it is a tribute and a sign of the way that community has responded to our armed forces. Mr Speaker, following the Liberal Democrat conference at the weekend, is the Prime Minister planning any new amendments to his health bill? First of all, let's be clear. These reforms are about cutting bureaucracy and improving patient care. These reforms were drawn up as a coalition to improve the NHS. And to answer his question, to answer his question very directly, we have already made some real strengthenings to this bill. First of all, first of all, we have ruled out price competition in the NHS. And also, the issue raised by the Liberal Democrats that I completely agree with, which is we must avoid cherry-picking by the private sector in the NHS. He might care to reflect that under the last Labour government, the private sector was given £250 million for operations that were never carried out. Perhaps he'd like to apologise for that cherry-picking and support our anti-cherry-picking amendment. Mr Speaker, let's give him another go at answering the question I asked. The question I asked is, following the Liberal Democrat conference at the weekend, are any further amendments going to be tabled to the Health Bill, yes or no? The the problem with pre-scripted questions is it doesn't give you it doesn't give you the opportunity to respond to the first answer where I gave a very clear answer about price competition and about cherry picking. But what I would say to the honourable gentleman is he should not set his face against reform in the NHS. The fact is we support extra money going into the NHS, money that he doesn't support, But we recognise, with an ageing population, with more expensive treatments, with new drugs coming on stream, we need to reform the NHS to go with the extra money that's being provided. Why is he setting his face against that? Mr Speaker, he's really got to get away from these pre-scripted answers. (laughs) Now, Now, I'll tell him, I'll tell him, I'll tell him why nobody trusts what he says about the NHS. What did he used to say about NHS reorganisations? There will be no more pointless top-down reorganisations that aim for change but instead bring chaos. It is profoundly disruptive and demoralising. Mr Speaker, I agree with what the Prime Minister used to say. Why doesn't he? We're not reorganising the bureaucracy of the NHS. We are abolishing the bureaucracy of the NHS. Perhaps perhaps he'd like to listen to what the adviser to the last Labour government said about our NHS reforms. He said this, most of these reforms are very much where the last government, and indeed I, would like to have gone if we'd not encountered some of the roadblocks that one did. Now, we know the roadblock was the last leader of the Labour Party. What a pity it is the current leader of the Labour Party is son of roadblock. <laughs> Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, I'm proud of our record on the NHS. A hundred, a hundred new hospitals, more doctors and nurses than ever before, the shortest waiting times in history, the highest level of patient satisfaction ever. But he is wrecking our record on the NHS. And, and what is his answer, Mr Speaker? 
It is a bill that creates a free market free-for-all and threatens existing NHS services. Now, very specific question, very specific question. Will he confirm that this bill makes healthcare subject to EU competition law for the first time in history? I have to say he's beginning to sound like the last leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> if he won't listen, if he won't listen to the adviser to the last Labour government, maybe he will listen to his own health spokesman who said this. No one in the House of Commons knows more about Thank you. Thanks for interrupting the Prime Minister. The answers from the Prime Minister order must be heard, and that's all there is to it. The Prime Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. If I can take the trouble to read out the opposition health spokesman's speeches, they should at least have the decency to listen to them. He said this, no one in the House of Commons knows more about the NHS than Andrew Lansley, except, except perhaps Stephen Dorrell. But Andrew Lansley spent six years in opposition as Shadow Health Secretary. No one's visited more of the NHS. No one's talked to more people in the NHS. And he went on to say, these plans are consistent, coherent and comprehensive. I would expect nothing less from Andrew Lansley. Talk about prescripted answers again. I mean, why doesn't he answer the question? Does he even know whether the whether their health service will now be subject to EU competition law? It will be. And look at this bill, uh, Mr. Mr. Speaker. Chapter two of the bill: competition. That's that's chapter two of the bill. Clause sixty. Clause sixty functions under the Competition Act. Clause sixty-six refused by the Competition Commission. Clause sixty-eight cooperation with the Office of Fair Trading. Mr Speaker, can the Prime Minister explain to the British people what's that got to do with health care? The party opposite is the party that rigged the system. So there was cherry-picking by the NHS. But the, the point I make is this. Members opposite all stood on a manifesto at the last election that said this. Well, I, I'm answering the question. Patient, this is what they said in their manifesto. Patients requiring elective care will have the right in law to choose from any provider who meets NHS standards at NHS quality. They were in favour of competition in their manifesto. All that's changed is they're just jumping on every bandwagon, supporting every union, blocking every reform and opposing the extra money into the NHS. Mr Speaker. He just doesn't get it. He's threatening the fabric of the NHS. This bill shows everything people don't like about this government. Broken promises, arrogance, incompetence and ignoring people who know something about the health service. Doesn't it show once again, as the BMA said yesterday, as the Liberal Democrats said on Saturday, you can't trust the Tories on the NHS? He should... He should, he should remember the fact. He should remember the fact that the BMA opposed foundation hospitals. They imposed GP fund holding. They imposed longer opening hours for GP surgeries. Isn't it typical that just as he has to back every other trade union, just as he has no ideas of his own, he just comes here and reads a BMA press release? How utterly feeble! Yeah. Gavin Williams. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr Simpson, be quiet, it's bad for your health. Gavin Williamson. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Has the Prime Minister seen the recent comments made by the Labour Chairman of the Public Accounts Committee, where she said that over the last 10 years, productivity in NHS hospitals has been in continuous decline, that the taxpayer is getting less for each pound spent. Will the Prime Minister assure this House that that trend is going to be reversed? My honourable friend makes an excellent point, and I would have thought members opposite would listen to the Labour-dominated Public Accounts Committee and its Labour leader. And what, what she said was this. Over the last 10 years, the productivity of NHS hospitals has been in almost continuous decline. The the health service has improved as the result of increased spending, but the taxpayer has been getting less for each pound spent. Now, that's what we have to look at. The fact is, we're not getting even the European average on cancer outcomes. You're twice as likely to die as a heart attack here as you are in France. You've got an ageing population, more expensive treatments, and their answer is to do absolutely nothing. How utterly, utterly feeble. Mr Angus Robertson. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Today's statistics show that unemployment has gone down in Scotland but has gone up in the rest of the UK. Will the Prime Minister ensure that the trend of lower unemployment in Scotland is not endangered by ridiculously high fuel prices and ridiculously high fuel duty in what is still the largest oil-producing nation in the European Union? Well, I thank the Honourable Gentleman for what he says, and and clearly uh, today's figures are a very mixed picture. The youth unemployment figures are disappointing once again, but overall what is interesting is actually employment is up and the number of claimants nationwide is actually down, and the number of claimants is now down by 32,000 since last year. So there are, as I say, very mixed picture. Now, in terms of fuel duty, the Honourable Gentleman knows that we have a budget coming up. I don't want to speculate what's going to be in that budget, but I know the pain that families and small businesses are feeling from the huge numbers of fuel duty increases that were put through by the last government. In their last budget, they put through seven fuel increases, one for before the election and six afterwards. What a surprise they didn't even have the brass neck to raise that one today. Nigel Adam. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Hundreds of residents across the Selby district are up in arms at the prospect of having a traveller site imposed on their villagers. Can the Prime Minister tell me what can be done and when to remove the top-down traveller site target currently imposed on local authorities? I can tell my honourable friend that we are abolishing the top-down traveller pitch targets that were imposed on local authorities, and instead local councils will determine the right level of site provision in consultation with their local communities. And I think it's also important we recognise that one law should apply to everyone in terms of planning policy in this country, travellers included. Mr Gordon Marsden. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, Mr Speaker, Blackpool has above-average numbers of residential homes for disabled people, including hundreds of my constituents. Can I ask the Prime Minister, therefore, why he still plans to scrap the DLA mobility component in his welfare reform bill, which potentially maroons them in those homes, and in his reply, will he not compare them with patients in hospitals? They are in their own homes, and they are not ill. 
I would urge him to look very carefully at the bill and look at our plans, uh, because actually what, what he will see is that in the reform of DLA, as we change that benefit and improve that benefit, we're putting the question of mobility into that reform. So what we will do is to avoid uh, the double counting that's happened in the past and sort out this issue, as I've said. Mr Stephen Phillips. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Earlier in the week, my right hon. Friend, the Prime Minister, received representations in relation to the government's <coughs> deficit reduction plans from, on the one hand, the credit rating agencies, and on the other, the right hon. Gentleman, the Leader of the Opposition, and others from the previous administration who got us into this mess. Whose advice is he going to follow? We should listen to the advice of Fitch, the credit rating agency, who this week reconfirmed our AAA credit rating status. I also think we should listen to the OECD, who are here today giving a presentation about the British economy, who strongly support our deficit reduction plans. And the point I would make is this. To those people who think there's some difference between deficit reduction and growth at the same time, they should look at the interest rates currently existing in Ireland, in Greece, and in Portugal. In Portugal, market interest rates are 7.5%. And what is the genius plan opposite? It is to halve the deficit in four years, which would get us in four years to where Portugal is today. What, what, a, what a brilliant plan. Jim Cunningham. Thank you, thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Is the Prime Minister aware that Southern Cross, who run, a, run 750 Old people's home up and down the country, and nine in Coventry and Warwickshire are in great difficulties. 31,000 old people could be affected by this. Does, will he talk to Quetar, who are the, the parent company, to see whether or not a solution can be found? Because this is a very serious situation. Well, I thank the Honourable Gentleman for raising this point, and I'll ask the Health Secretary uh, or one of his ministers to contact, to contact the Honourable Gentleman urgently to discuss this. It's vitally important we have good residential care provision in our country, and it's vitally important that there is competition and choice in that residential care uh, provision, and there are many private providers that provide an excellent service, but I'll make sure one of my ministers gets in touch with them straight away. Joe Swinson. Mr. Speaker, I welcome the UK's strong leadership at the UN on Libya. Can the Prime Minister tell me what message he thinks it will send to every tyrannical dictator if, against the urgent desire of the Libyan people, against the wishes of the Arab League and against the UN principle of responsibility to protect, the international community fails to stop Gaddafi crushing the spirit, the hopes and the lives of the Libyan people? I think the Honourable Lady makes a very important point. Every world leader has said that Gaddafi should go, that his regime is illegitimate. And if at the end of this he is left in place, that will send a terrible message, as she says, not just to people in Libya, but to others across the region who want to see greater, greater democracy, uh, greater openness in, in their societies. And that's why I think it's right for Britain to play this leading role at the UN and elsewhere. I'm not arguing that a no-fly zone is a simple solution to this problem. Of course it isn't. But I do think it's part of one of the steps we need to take to isolate and to pressure this regime and to say that we stand with people in Libya who want to have greater democracy and greater freedom just as we take for granted in this country. Steve McCabe. Does the uh, Prime Minister have any sense of the current mood of bewilderment and betrayal felt by rank and file police officers? I strongly support the British police. They are the finest force. They are the finest force in the world. But what the police, as other public servants know, is that we were left a deep budget deficit that we have to deal with. 
And if we want to keep police officers on the streets, then it is necessary to have the pay freeze that we are talking about. And it is necessary to look, as Tom Windsor has done, at the allowances that they receive and to work out how we can make sure we have well-paid, well-motivated um, police officers doing a great job in our country. But again, if the party opposite is just going to stand against every reform, every change, every improvement and say there's nothing we can do about any one of these problems, they will not only be irrelevant, but the British public will work out they are irrelevant. Mr Matthew Hancock. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Last night there was a violent, last night there was a violent double murder in Beck Row in Suffolk, and this was the most serious in a series of incidents in the area. Will the Prime Minister reassure me and the residents of West Suffolk that these crimes will be fully investigated, their perpetrators face justice, and that everywhere in this country must be subject to the rule of law. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can certainly give my honourable friend that assurance. This is a very disturbing case, and I'm sure honourable members all will have heard about it this morning uh, on the news. And I think the police will want to do everything they can to get to the bottom of this dreadful crime and to bring the perpetrators to justice. Mr. Lindsay Roy. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. On all sides of the House, we appreciate the mammoth crisis in Japan. Our hearts, our hearts go out to the people there, and we all want to do everything we can to help, including the UK, and I appreciate the Prime Minister's comments on Monday. Would, however, the Prime Minister investigate reports that a British rescue team has been recently been turned away from Japan? Well, I'm grateful for the Honourable Gentleman's question, and I, I've uh, asked for briefing about this. I can tell the House what happened. The official rescue team that was sent from the UK in good time, arrived in good time, and have already started work. There was an extra independent rescue team that didn't have the correct documentation, uh, and so that uh, they did encounter some problems, but we're doing everything we can to make sure they can get access. Mr Stuart Andrew. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, this week, tickets for the London Olympics went on sale. Would my right honourable friend agree with me that if those people buying tickets saw an athlete finish, crossing the finishing line in first place, only to end up on the bronze medal podium, <laughs> would demand a refund? Doesn't he agree that this is a, an example that highlights the absurdity of AV and why we need a no vote? That's, uh, I have to say to the Marble friends, an ingenious way of weaving the alternative vote into a question uh, in this House. What I'd say is this, is clearly there's support for the No campaign on all sides of the House, and I'm sure there are those who support the Yes campaign, and we should have this argument out in the country and make arguments uh, like that. But in terms of the Olympics, I, I hope that as many people as possible will be able to, be able to get to see the Olympics. I think it's going to be a fantastic festival of sport in our country. Nick Smith. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister stood on Ark Royal last year and said he wanted a new military covenant written into the law of the land. The Royal British Legion has said the proposals brought forward by MOD ministers in the Armed Forces Bill do not, do not honour this pledge. Will the Prime Minister follow the Legion's advice, define the covenant in law and keep the promise he made? I'm having discussions with the Royal British Legion about this because it seems to be the right thing to do is to clearly reference the covenant in law but to have a debate in this house every year about the covenant and make sure we can update it and improve it because this is not some static document it needs to take into account changing health needs changing education needs and make sure that the covenant is the very best that it can be for our armed service personnel Mr Bernard Jenkins Mr Speaker would my right honourable friend support the following statement? 
The reason I have never supported AV is that it would have given Labour an even bigger majority in 1997, and it would have given the Tories an even bigger majority in 1983 and 1987 as well. And that if we want reform to build public trust and confidence in politics, AV doesn't deliver that. Was he surprised as I was to learn that that was the Honourable Member for Exeter, who is the director of Labour Yes to AV campaign? Um, what, what can I add to that, uh, to that brilliant piece of judgment? Mr Gareth Thomas. I draw the attention of the House to the interest that I previously declared. Mr Speaker, there are very few people outside the House, or I suspect inside the House, who think that Northern Rock would have got into as much trouble if it had still been a mutual building society. Given the considerable scepticism about whether the Coalition really wants to change the culture in the banking industry, Will the Prime Minister now insist that his city minister requires a serious and detailed assessment of the case for remutualisation of Northern Rock? Well, we are prepared to look at all options, and the city minister will be doing that. I think that two points I'd make. One is that we think mutualisation should be going much further than just in the banking industry, and we're actually looking at um, options for mutualisation within the public sector to give uh, members of, of staff in public sector organisations far more control over the organisations they're in. In terms of banking, it's not just looking at mutualisation, it's looking at the whole issue of responsibility and trying to link again the idea of taking deposits and making loans in the way that building societies used to. Mr Robert Halfon. Thank you Mr Speaker. Given the Lockerbie bomb and Gaddafi's continuing murder of his own people, does the Prime Minister think it was wrong for British universities to sign deals with Libya, wrong for the last government to help facilitate some of those contracts and will he take steps to learn the lessons and ensure that this never happens again? I, I, I do think there are lessons to be learned. As I've said, I think it was right to respond to what Libya did in terms of weapons of mass destruction, but the way in which that response was handled I don't think was right. I think there was too much credulity shown, particularly over issues like Abdul Basit al-Megrahi, the man who was convicted of the biggest mass murder in British history, and also obviously universities will want, as they are, to ask themselves some pretty searching questions about what they did. Mr Kelvin Hopkins. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman has said that the government's economic policy is going in precisely the wrong direction. Does the Prime Minister really wish to be remembered as a reincarnation of President Herbert Hoover, whose policies led directly to the Great Depression of the 30s, and then to leave uh, the future open to our leader to be a new Roosevelt and lead us away from that? Well, that's um, as far as a job application went, I think that was, uh, that was at the greasy end of the spectrum, I think is uh, what I would say. Look, I prefer to listen to the head of the OECD, who's in London today, who said this, I think dealing with the deficit is the best way to pe- prepare the ground for growth in the future. And when it comes to who supports this government's policy, we've got the OECD, the IMF, the FSB, the CBI, the Bank of England. When the Shadow Chancellor was asked recently, who supports your economic policy, there was a long pause, and he finally replied, The Guardian. <laughs> I'll keep my supporters, you can keep yours. Mr James Gray. Mr Speaker, the people of Wooden Bassett have uh, sought no thanks nor praise for what they've done on so many hundreds of occasions over the years, but they will be deeply honoured and very pleased by the great honour which Her Majesty has shown them on this occasion. Will the Prime Minister now lead the people of Carterton in his own constituency in filling the place which they fill? 
first of all, can I say to my uh, honourable friend um, how, uh, what an honour it is for me to be able to announce today about Royal Wooten Bassett and how I enjoyed meeting with him and the Mayor of Wooten Bassett and others with it to, to, to do with that town. And let me just be absolutely clear, they did not ask for any recognition. They didn't ask for any form of preferment. They just believed they were honourably and honestly uh, doing a, a job that the whole country wanted to see done. Now that the route is going to be uh, going a different route, we have to look at the issues that he raises. Already there's quite a demonstration that takes place uh, of uh, solidarity and support outside the John Radcliffe Hospital, but I'll certainly bear in mind what he says. Jonathan Edward. Do you Mr Speaker? Following the emphatic yes vote in the referendum on lawmaking powers, a series yeah, of yeah. UK government ministers have proposed a Coleman-like process for Wales. Will he confirm that reform of the Barnett formula, as advocated by the Independent Holtham Commission, will be a cornerstone of any wider changes to the way the Welsh Government is funded. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are looking at a Calman-like process for Wales. We think that is right, and we will bring forward up some announcements and proposals about that. But let me just say this. Because the spending reductions in Wales are less than the spending reductions in England, what we'll find at the end of this Parliament is that the difference in spending per head in Wales will be even greater than it is today. So I don't accept the um, contention that somehow people in Wales are being unfairly targeted with cuts. They're not. They're getting a better deal than other, some other parts of the United Kingdom. Simon Wright. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. A report published today by the End Child Poverty Campaign shows that when Labour left office, they left 30% of Norwich's children living in poverty, the worst in the east of England. Does the Prime Minister agree that, a, that such a complex problem demands a cross-government response to tackle the causes of poverty and deliver greater social mobility. I, I think the honourable gentleman is entirely right, and if we just think of combating child poverty in terms of moving people a little bit above or below the line, we're never going to deal with the underlying causes of child poverty, which is the worklessness, the family breakdown, and other problems that are linked to it. And I'm determined that we try and harness the expertise from across the House of Commons. And actually, the honourable member for uh, Nottingham South is involved in this work as is the Honourable Member for Birkenhead, making sure we really look at life chances as well as poverty itself. Rashlara Ali. Earlier this month, I joined my constituents and many others from across the East End to commemorate the 68th anniversary of the 1943 Bethnal Green tube disaster. It was one of the worst civilian disasters of the Second World War. 173 people were killed and 90 injured seeking shelter. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that there should be a fitting permanent memorial for those who perished? And will he lend his support to the Stay Away to, to Heaven memorial campaign? Well, I will certainly look very carefully at what the Honourable Lady says. She speaks very powerfully on behalf of her constituents about something that happened, yes, many years ago, but people will still have strong family memories of, of what happened at that time. I'll look carefully at what she says and see what support that I and my office can give. Mr Damien Collins. Um, would the Prime Minister agree with me that uh, nuclear power stations in the UK, like at Dungeness and my constituency, have an excellent safety record and that new nuclear power will be an important part of our energy needs in the future? Yeah. I do think that nuclear power should be part of the mix in future, as it is part of the mix right now. Obviously, I'm sure that everyone watching the dreadful events in Japan will want to make sure we learn any lessons. Of course, there are big differences. We don't have those reactor designs in the UK, nor do we plan them. 
and also we're not in a, a similar seismically important and significant area. But nevertheless, I'm sure there will be lessons to learn, and that's why my right honourable friend, the Climate Change and Energy Secretary, has asked the Head of Nuclear Inspections and Safety to learn the lessons and make sure that we do that in our country. Gemma Doyle. Very grateful, Mr Speaker. This week marks the 70th anniversary of the Clybank Blitz, in which 528 people lost their lives, hundreds more were seriously injured, and 35,000 people were made homeless. Clybank suffered the worst devastation and loss of life in Scotland during the Second World War. Will the Prime Minister join me in paying tribute to all those who lost their lives, all those who still carry their injuries with them today, and crucially to the people who rebuilt Clydebank after those terrible events 70 years ago? I will certainly join her in paying tribute to those people, and I think it's important as we reach uh, the 60th and, and 70th anniversaries of these events, and we recognise there are many people now who lived through them, who are coming to the end of their lives. It may well be our last opportunity to commemorate what happened and to remember those who died. And I think this is particularly important as we come up to these anniversaries. We get that right. Order.